you're listening to the True Life Church podcast. To learn more about True Life Church, including our service times in Melbourne, Florida, join us online at truelifemelbourne.com or find us on Facebook. Today's message comes from lead pastor Joshua Smith. Our service order is a little bit different today because at the end, hopefully as a response, it's not this message, but God's message contained in this book that we're going to read out of this morning will will cause out of us a place of repentance and indescribable joy. We're going to celebrate closing out with a few songs after the message. We've been able to celebrate with baptisms. We've been able to remember what Christ has done for us and told us, commanded us to do in remembrance of Him. So now we're going to open His Word. And friends, if, if I die today, let my sons recall today's message. And if there's only one sermon left I ever preach, let it be this one. Today is special in a lot of ways. Seven years ago, this Easter, today, was the rebirth of this church, now known as True Life Church. And it's been a gradual journey for us, coming closer and closer to what God's plan is for this body of Christ. And in this series in Nehemiah, we have learned from this story that we need to build and fight, and this church has been building and fighting now for seven years. Can you believe it? The church that was founded in 1966 and almost proclaimed dead, in fact it was by the previous pastor, said, there is no hope for this people, have in our own way been resurrected, not by what we have done, but because of what he has done. And that's what we're here to celebrate. Nehemiah, we're in this series. You may be wondering, how are we going to talk about Nehemiah and Jesus on the cross? Friends, let me tell you, I could take no credit for today's message. It's all the word of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, just uh, in a weird way, thank you for the near-death experience that our church had so that we can appreciate the value of life and that life being found in you. Yeah, I pray that you use this message for the edification of this body of Christ, the building up and encouragement of each other, the conviction of our hearts through the Holy Spirit and the glorification of you. God, may I decrease and you decrease. May that be the cry of all of our hearts this morning as we open your word. And True Life Church says, Amen. This is my second week now with the pulpit I built, and I like it. I'm just going to throw it out there. Nehemiah, we're in this series, has been let go by King Artaxerxes of Persia and allowed to return. He had good standing with King Artaxerxes. He was his cupbearer. He was like the number two, very important guy. Um, 
And he's allowed to return to his homeland that he's never seen, never set foot in, because he's been captive from all the way from the Babylonian captivity when they took over King Nebuchadnezzar. We have Daniel, Lion's Den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the way through then, Babylon was eventually then conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And now, years later, King Artaxerxes, who's over Persia, has inherited the Israelite prisoner remnant. And Nehemiah is one of those, and he hears what has transpired in his homeland, which again, he's never seen. The holy land, if you will, of his forefathers. The place where Abraham came and was sent. The place where Moses led them to and Joshua led them into. And this place with the city of Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord had been laid to ruins and no one has rebuilt it. And it broke his heart. And moved him to tears and repentance and said, someone's got to do something about this. So Artaxerxes financed this trip and let Nehemiah and thousands, tens of thousands of other people return. Let them out of captivity and let them return to rebuild Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah has already ridden around, we're in chapter 6 today, but in the previous chapters he's already ridden around the city and discovered that these walls are junk. Like a couple of bricks high, they're not going to stop anybody. And so wild animals are coming in and out of the city, and enemies who are around there, the different tribes and nations and peoples who worship other gods, can come and go freely and raid and pillage. And Jerusalem is the laughing stock of a city. So let's start with the wall. So he rebuilds, begins rebuilding the walls, and other groups of these peoples we talked about, led by men like Sanballat and the Samaritans and Tobiah. The Amorites and the Ashdodites, they all don't like Jerusalem being rebuilt because that means that they would be weaker instead of stronger. So Nehemiah starts with the walls because, again, walls equal city, city equal you can build a temple, and temple equal the presence of the Lord. Other peoples and the remnant of Israelites who were not thrown into captivity in this area of Judea are more conveniently over the past hundred or so, seventy years, have just blended in to the rest of other societies and cultures, worshiping other gods freely. And if you know anything about the Ten Commandments, that kind of breaks the first two, like, immediately. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Nehemiah. I invite you to open up the Word of God. Uh, If you need a Bible, it is in front of you. Uh, in one of the chair baskets, it's blue. If you do not own a Bible, please take this one with you. It is yours. It's the best and least also gift we could give you as a church is the Word of God for you to, for you to have. So turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And today we're going to look at our main scripture, which is Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. We're going to read all of it, and we're going to come back and, and pull out some parallels Now when Sanballat, he's the bad guy, and Tobiah, another bad guy, and Geshem, bad guy, and Arab, bad guy, and the rest of our enemies, bad guys, heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it because it was halfway done, right? Although to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, so it was just open. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. Anyone ever felt like you've been in a plane of, oh no? But they intended to do me harm. He's like, I see through your plan. That's the plane of, oh no. 
You're asking me too. Oh, no. And I sent messengers to them saying, I, you know what? I'm doing a great work. I'm building a wall. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work. In the same way, Sanballat now for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, as reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, because he can be trusted, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. And now a king, King Artaxerxes, who sent you by the way, is going to hear these reports. So now come together and let's take counsel together. Let's figure this out. And I said to him, saying, no such things as you say have been done. In fact, I'm here on the king's permission, because you had not figured that out yet, Sanballat. No such things have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. You're just making it up. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, you know, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. If we just scare them enough, they'll cave. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to, into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, you know what, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Ooh. Should he go there? And if you know your Old Testament... We've read through Second Chronicles and Ezra, and we've seen kings and men who should not have even touched the Ark of the Covenant or gone into the inner place of the temple and were either struck dead or struck with leprosy, like immediately. Now, Nehemiah is no fool. He knows the words of the Lord. He knows the law. And this Shemaiah guy says, let's go hide in the temple. Claim sanctuary, if you will. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Because he knows if he does, he's a dead man before God anyway. I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. I paid him off to. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, try to tempt him, so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to the things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And that's not remembering on the good side of the Lord, in case you're curious. Verse 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. They built this thing in 52 days. Y'all, they can't even fix I-4 in 52 days. All right, this thing is a miracle in its own right. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. <laughs> We're going to look at seven parallels between this passage and open, a, hopefully, a deeper understanding through God's Word to how this actually can tie and does tie in very deeply with the story of Jesus on the cross. 
in order of the parallels that we're going to look at, number one, <coughs> the parallel of the authority of the king, from the king, Artaxerxes of Persia, to do what the people could not do for themselves. Parallel number two, how Nehemiah was taunted to meet them four times. Parallel number three, how his response to that was, and I hope if you walk away with one of the things today, it's going to be remembering this phrase, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. And in the plane of, oh no, Nehemiah was like, oh yes, I'm building this thing. Parallel number four, about how there was a king, the king proclaimed. Now was this king proclaimed Nehemiah? Did Nehemiah proclaim himself king? We know the answer from just reading it. Nehemiah did not proclaim himself king. A fifth parallel, how the holiness of the temple was reserved and revered, and Nehemiah did not go in for fear of the Lord. How Nehemiah in verse 15 and 16 finished the wall, that it was done, it was completed. And then finally, we're going to move a little bit backwards into chapter 3, as we look at the parallel between the high priest and a sheep. What does it got to do with that? Now, parallel. A few things to get straight. A couple of disclaimers. A quid pro quo. Ipso facto and other fun words. Parallels. Obviously, Nehemiah is not Jesus. Right? We are not taking a Gnostic approach to this. It's not a substitute. He's not the Savior. Nehemiah is not the Savior in this book, Nehemiah, that bears his name. He, if you read it, and we have, gives all glory to God and acknowledges that he is definitely and most definitely not God. Jesus, however, is God. The representation of the holy presented to us as human, fully both divine and of the dust. Jesus is the Savior of the world and of this book that bears his name, Yes, the Word of God, because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. A few weeks ago, we talked about our hearts and how we are grafted through grace and Jesus Christ into the same tree as the people of Israel. And stories like this Nehemiah and everything that have happened and we're reading about, they, they happened so that if someone really wanted to know the character of God, they'd be able to see his fingerprints all over it. There are parallels between Nehemiah and Jesus. Scripture is so prophetic and foreshadowing mysterious and marvelous that even Old Testament stories about building walls of a city named Jerusalem paint for us a picture of Christ. Parallel number one. Let's dive in. The authority of a king. Now, whereas Nehemiah had the authority from another king to rebuild the city, Jesus Christ was, in fact, the king who had and has all authority on heaven and earth, right? Nehemiah, not the king. Jesus, actually king. And on the cross, Jesus chose to do for mankind what mankind could not do for themselves. That's literally what grace is. Doing for someone what they cannot do for themselves. And Jesus offered up his life to offer us grace, Jesus offered up his life so that we could be offered grace. There's no way we could do it on our own. There's no way we could earn forgiveness. There's no way we could pave our own path to eternity if not for Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us a way to know God, to be in a relationship, to be in communion with God, to be forgiven, to have eternal life. 
And there is no way, no way, without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that we would have access to any of that. That was easy, right? Parallel number one, out of the way. We, we see a little similarities. Nehemiah, king, the authority of the king? No. Jesus, the king? Yes. Okay, we're going to keep moving on. Stay with me. Parallel number two. Here comes a boatload of scripture. All right, the references are going to be up here. And if you'd like, I can make my manuscript available because there's a lot. All right, for right now, I just want to invite you to listen to the words of God because you might not be able to keep up. Could be a test, though. Could be fun. A little game where you play and you lose. Parallel number two, taunted four times. Now, in a similar way to how Nehemiah was teased and taunted four times, he read about it in verse four, Jesus also was taunted by four groups of people. The Roman soldiers, the people at the cross, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the Jewish guards, and finally, by the thieves crucified next to him on the cross themselves. Let's take a deep look at this, and I'm going to read from the Gospels in which they present themselves so you don't think I'm making stuff up, and so that you see that there's a lot more going on here than just one verse. The Word of God is awesome. The first group we're going to look at is the Roman soldiers, and this is why it's so important, especially on this weekend. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 31 says this, And the soldiers, this is the first group, the Roman soldiers of the governor, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a seed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head, which, by the way, had a crown of thorns, in case you hadn't already forgotten And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in the purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Now, hail, king of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Luke 22, verse 63 through 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? Did I hit you? Did I hit you? Who hit you? It's absolutely making fun of him. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe, mocking his royalty. And they came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Brutal, right? And we haven't even gone through the story yet. This is our Savior. The first group... Roman soldiers mocked him and taunted him. The second group, the people at the cross, standing in front watching all of this parade before them and this display of grotesque physical abuse. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39 through 40. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
If you can do what you say, you can. Prove it. Mark chapter 15, verses 29 and 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days. Save yourself. Come down from that cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 35. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. A third group of priests, Pharisees and Jewish guards who mocked Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, verse 41 through 43. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. If he trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And that takes us into the fourth group of people who mocked Jesus and taunted him on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Mark chapter 15, verse 32, we just read, those who were crucified him with him also reviled him. And now we get a little bit more of the picture from Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And as they're suffocating for air, breathing and trying to push themselves up on the nails between their hands and their feet, struggling to get out even sentences. The other man rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this one man on the one cross, even in that moment, had his life changed. Condemned to die, but saved to live. Parallel number three. Nehemiah was taunted four times by his enemies. And you remember his response, hopefully? I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down. I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down. I'm on the wall. I'm building it. And I ain't going nowhere. Now think of this. That next to the very same walls of the very same city of Jerusalem, almost 500 years later, when taunted, Though he had the power and the authority to when Nehemiah didn't because Nehemiah was not king, Jesus is. Jesus chose to stay on the cross unto death. And in a similar way and through silence and suffering said, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Think about that for a second. I am doing a great work. My whole ministry, my whole purpose has led to this. I'm doing it, and I'm not coming down. You can mock me, you can taunt me, and I'm not going anywhere because the whole world's sin hangs in the balance. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. The taunts, and in fact, the very reason Jesus was even there on the cross was because of sin, our sin. Your sin, my sin, 
Anyone who's ever lived sin. That because of his pardon alone, by his grace alone, through faith alone, from Christ alone, we might be saved. John chapter 16, verse 25 through 33 says this. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. But I'm going to tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And obviously this is before the crucifixion. So his disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and, and you're not using figurative speech or awkward parables. Now we, now we know that you do all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, oh, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. On the cross, abandoned, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I am doing a great work. I will not come down. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. He cries out, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour? But for this purpose, this is why I came, I have come to this hour, and Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He is king, right? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up, behold, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains whoever. So for, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. So while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. You're probably familiar, hopefully you are with 16, but we're going to back up a little bit so that we can see as Jesus is talking to this Pharisee named Nicodemus in the middle of the night, what he's sharing with him. And he said, Jesus, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I am doing a great work and cannot come down. The Son of God must be lifted up, showing the way that he would die. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Thank 
speed of God, he did not come down because he could have. Parallel number four, a king in Judah. Now, Nehemiah had been falsely accused that he was sending reports that he, he and his people wanted to rebel. He had proclaimed himself king. He's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not the king. He knows who the king is. I'm not the king. Nehemiah, not king. Jesus, king. Nehemiah, not king. Jesus, you're catching on. Nehemiah, Jesus, king. Okay. Even in Jesus' death, he was proclaimed king. Matthew chapter 27, verse 37. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Mark chapter 15, verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. Luke chapter 23, verse 38. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And now we get more picture from the gospel of John. It gives us a little bit more detail in chapter 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross and read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek in all the main languages proclaimed for all Jesus, king. And the chief priests, they didn't like that one little bit. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do, do, do not write king of the Jews, but, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. To which Pilate responds, what I have written, I have written. Even Pontius Pilate's heart was moved to recognize that there was something divine in this man. Jesus, even in death, was proclaimed king, and he was. And you know what? He still is. He, he still is. And whereas Nehemiah knew he's not the king, he denied that he was the king in Judah, Jesus is the king in more than Judah. King over all. Zechariah chapter 9, 9, check this out. Rejoice greatly, this is prophecies, before it has even come to pass, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we can picture the Palm Sunday that we celebrated a week ago, in which people were taking off their coats and cutting down palm branches and waving them, saying, Hosanna, here he comes, King of the Jews. And a week later, they denied him. The word is prophesied that this man comes as king. The birth of Christ, Matthew chapter 2. Like Christmas, you betcha Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
And they were referencing Micah chapter 5 in that passage. Nehemiah, not the king. Now Jesus was king, is king, forever will be king. There is a king in Judah. There is a king over all. He was king, is king, and will be king forever and ever and ever. And today we celebrate that he is risen, that our king is risen, and that he is alive, and that he is still king. Nothing has changed. Parallel number five, the holiness of the temple. Now, you might recall, it was about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes ago already, so I'm just tracking, you know, you might not have lost me already, that's okay. But in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, Nehemiah was invited to disobey the Old Testament laws of the priests and the Levites and go into the temple to hide. Did he? No. No. Okay, just, just making sure. Now, his response was twofold. Number one, should such a man as I run away? And then secondly, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? And again, we've already read about the kings and other men who were struck down and either killed or given a sickness because they entered the temple and disobeyed. Now, note the dichotomy of Nehemiah's answer. It's actually beautiful. On one hand, there is a righteous calling, a duty, a responsibility, and an obligation, a purpose even, in not running away. He's no coward, especially no coward for the Lord. Should such a man as I run away? Uh Uh-uh. Mama didn't raise no coward. I'm going to build this wall. I'm not running away. I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared. I'm not scared of you. I'm with the Lord, in case you haven't noticed that. I'm not afraid. I don't need to go hide in that temple and be tempted to disobey the law. On one hand, again, he knows what his purpose is. Mm-mm, too good for that. Not going to be scared. Not on behalf of my God. He's bigger and better than Sanballat. On the other hand, in his second answer, and what, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? On the other hand, he knows that even this purpose, this godly purpose and mission of rebuilding the city and walls of Jerusalem... Even that does not exempt him from being a sinful man in the eyes of the Lord. And nothing evil can stand in the presence of God and live. And in the same statement, in this one two-part answer, Nehemiah shows both divine understanding and desperate unworthiness. Now how is this applicable today? Big words, I don't know, what do I do with that? Because you know what, we, we live in a world that says, you are enough. We live in a culture that says, you know what? You're good. Moreover, you're good just the way you are. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to submit to a king or a higher authority. You just do you. Put up the cat poster on the wall. It says, hang in there. Like, you just do what you want to do. You live your own truth. And this mindset... And we operate out of falseness like this. This mindset stands in opposition to the holiness of God. You are not holy on your own. Anyone ever told you that? You are not righteous by yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 21 
For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus, has died for all. Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. For our sake, verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was perfect made sin on our behalf so that in him and in him alone we might become the righteousness of God. It's only through Christ and what he has done for us on the cross that we can even stand in any defense and say there is anything remotely good in us because anything good in us does not come from us, it comes from God. The book before this, Paul writes to the church in Corinth the first time that we are aware of. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What's the price? Jesus' death on the cross. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The temple is still holy, Yes? And you are not righteous, right? Not without Christ in you and you in Christ. Nehemiah, even in the Old Testament, understood this. But pay attention to what happens to the same physical temple, the actual building, five centuries later. Now we're back into Jesus' time in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 through 54. And as Jesus was on the cross, behold, the curtain of the temple, inside the temple, separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of everything else. That curtain from the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. There's dead people walking around. Would that creep anybody out? It better at least tell you something's going on. There was a resurrection somewhere because of somebody. And they went into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Grandma? <laughs> you died like 28 years ago. But I feel fantastic. Where's my teeth? When the centurion and those who were with him, Jesus, keeping watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and they saw what took place. They were filled with awe. Wouldn't you be? And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. Now it was now about the sixth hour, or about 3 p.m. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, about 6 p.m. It got dark out of nowhere at 3 p.m. Freak anybody out? Yeah, something's going on. Like, where did the sun go? Like, it's not even really cloudy. Where did the sun go? Huh. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, I had misunderstood for some time what the beating of the breasts meant. I thought oh, today's beating of the breast like a gorilla it just means you're proud. And you go all Tarzan, me, me, me. Not in old times. You see, a Hebrew custom when you beat your breast was acknowledging your failure, your shame, your guilt. And you would immediately just begin hitting yourself out of sorrow. That's why they were beating their breasts, because they all understood. Wow. That man we just said, crucify him too. Shouted and chanted his name. Give us the murderer Barabbas instead. This man we just crucified. Wow, we done messed up, y'all. He was who he said he was. And the temple is still holy. And in Jesus' death, that temple that had been the great separator, the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the people, this curtain was torn in two, giving us a beautiful access of God to everyone. You didn't have to be a, a high priest or a Levite to have access to the temple anymore. You no longer had to atone for your sins by killing of different animals and the shedding of their blood. All that was done. You have access to the temple because Jesus became the sacrifice for all. And the temple then became accessible to everyone, to you, to me. No, you don't have to go to Jerusalem for the high holy days or the feasts or the festival of booths anymore. You don't have to. You don't have to have a sacrifice. You don't have to kill a dove or a lamb. You don't have to go somewhere else to atone for sin because Jesus became the atonement for all of our sin. One sacrifice. Done. And that temple that was unleashed and we are given access to, that, that holiness now resides in all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus was mocked for saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But guess what? That's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. That's what we're celebrating today. End of old temple, beginning of new temple. All have access. All offer grace. All. Worshiping King Jesus. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you, do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, You know what? Destroy this temple, this building. Destroy it. And in three days, I will raise it up. Don't believe me, just watch. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you all get the picture? 
the curtain separating the holy of holies in the temple was ripped open when he died, and three days later, Jesus is alive again. The temple being rebuilt and now open for everyone. Hallelujah. Interestingly, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, Jesus gives a hint of what's to come later. Jesus left the temple and it was going away when his disciples came to a point They point out the buildings. Oh, look at this fantastic building. Look at this awesome temple. But he answered them, you see all these these buildings, right? Truly, I say to you, you're not going to be one stone left here upon another. It will not be thrown down. It's all going to be torn down. Worship if you want. It's a waste of time because it's not going to be here. And about 40 years after the crucifixion, about 70 AD, there was a Jewish-Roman war where the Jews rebelled against their rulers, and guess what? They lost badly. Jerusalem and the temple were just as Jesus said it was destroyed. Emperor Hadrian vowed to rebuild Jerusalem in AD 130, but instead of rebuilding it for the Jews, he rebuilt it for the Romans and renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina. And the province in it was retitled Syria Palestina. Picture of modern day history coming together for anybody? Syria, Palestine. West Bank, East Bank, other banks. Only Romans were then allowed within the city of Jerusalem. Jews were banned from entering the city of Jerusalem on penalty of death. Couldn't even go back in, except on one day called Tisha B'Av, which commemorated the destruction of both the first and the second temple. Solomon's temple lost in the Babylonian captivity we mentioned earlier, and now this destruction in the Roman War. Also, this is probably why we don't hear a lot about the early Jerusalem church after about this time. We weren't even allowed to go into Jerusalem. Everything came to pass just as Jesus said it would. John chapter 18, verse 33 through 37. We'll go there in a second. You see, because Jesus' death not only signified an access to the temple to everyone, but just a few years later, as he said it would, the building was destroyed Meaning that if that's where your faith was, in stuff, in buildings, in places, it ended. But for all those that understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, the completion of the Old Testament, the divine purpose of the Father, it all makes sense. So now this passage in John. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. He called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom, my temple, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king for this purpose. I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Two more parallels this morning between Nehemiah and the cross. Stick with me. Parallel number six, it is finished. So far in the book of Nehemiah, we've read all about the battles and the difficulties he has had in trying to get the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. But finally, and miraculously, you might say, in only 52 days, in verse 15 to 16, the walls 
are finished. Finally, it is finished. But the story is not over, is it? Much in the same way, and with even greater magnitude and internal importance, we have Jesus' last moments on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark 15, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now from John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. It is finished right there, that moment in time, on the cross, done. It's finished. And In a way, the resurrection is almost like a glorious icing on the cake to prove that he really was who he said he was. That he really was king and had authority over life and death and wind and waves and storms and mountains and oceans and hearts and lives. It is finished. It is finished. Everything Jesus came to do on earth. What's the it? What's the it is finished? Everything he came to do, his purpose, his ministry, his healing, his teaching, his miracles, his death, done. Then and now for all eternity, done. Jesus finished it on the cross. Nothing is left undone. Not even today. It is completed. Isn't that worth rejoicing over? I got us completed it. Done. Battle over. War over. Eternity sealed. It's finished. It is finished. Parallel number seven. The high priest and the sheep. A few chapters back in Nehemiah chapter 3, we read every verse, every verse of who built what section of the wall and what gates and how many men and their names and who boy, was it exciting. Let you listen to that one on repeat. Now you may be wondering why, first of all, why is that in there? And second of all, why did we have to read it all? Here's why it's important. We're going to go back a few pages to Nehemiah chapter 3. Just one verse and then another verse. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. When Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate, they consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now... The end of the chapter, the beginning and the end, verse 32. And between the upper chamber and the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Now, it's not, ooh, ah. But what we read, when we understand this, we, we, we learn that the whole work of building the entire wall of the city of Jerusalem began and ended with the high priest's building their section at the Sheep Gate. Revelation chapter 22. Oh yeah, we're going there. Verses 10 through 14. And he said to me, John, he's told to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil doers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. 
Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Now remember, we talked about being grafted into the tree of life a couple of weeks ago. And that they may enter the city by the gates. Ooh. Okay, so some dudes began and finished the wall at some point. Gate thing about sheep. Okay, Jesus is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Okay, so what? Hang with me. Beginning and end. Wall around Jerusalem. Began and started with what the Elisha and the high priests did. That was their job, to consecrate this section of the wall. And when it was built, the sheep gate was the only gate, we just read it in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, was the only gate out of all the ones constructed that was built by the high priest. It's the only gate they built, their only section of the wall. And you had to have special privileges to go through that gate. Now, Jesus, if you are unaware, is also referred to as our great high priest. Keep tracking with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus now being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that even mean? Well, Melchizedek can be found way back in the book of, guess what? The first one. We're going all the way from Revelation back to the beginning. In the book of Genesis... And in Genesis chapter 14, we learn about a man named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a king and high priest. He's both. King and high priest of God in a place called Salem. Which over time became Shalom, which means peace. So Melchizedek, this first high priest of God we we see in the Old Testament, in the first book of the Bible is king and high priest over a place called peace. And Abraham, at this time, Abram, meets him in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 18, on his journey following the Lord to the new land. It says, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, he won a battle and got some people back, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, you may know of this city, Sodom and, okay, bad king, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, king and priest. And he blessed Abram and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Another picture of Melchizedek and why this will be important, King David writes about in Psalm chapter 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Father, to 
Jesus, you might think, because it's capitalized, and that means something totally different. We're not going there now, but he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. Hint, hint, resurrection, anyone? The dew of your youth, alive again, will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David's not writing this about himself. He's writing it about the coming Messiah. So Jesus is king and high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so what does that mean? Now, when Abram met Melchizedek, if you recall, we just read it in Genesis, what did Melchizedek do? He made a covenant with bread and wine. Sound familiar? Luke chapter 22, verse 7 through 20. We've done this already this morning. And the day came of the unleavened bread, a Passover, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Coincidentally, it doesn't line up that often, but this past Friday was the Passover day. The Good Friday, once you would have happened, the death, and now, resurrection Sunday morning. So there came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when, you, when you've entered the city, obviously the city of Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished to prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at a table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's looking forward to this moment. And if you've ever wondered why, hopefully this will make a little bit more sense. Because this is his purpose. This is what everything has led to. He's ready for it. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, wine, and bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Bread. Wine. New covenant. Our king of peace and high priest fulfilling again the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Bread, wine, new covenant. Guess what? Jesus, king, great high priest. Do you understand this now, like in the order of Melchizedek and why this matters going all the way back to the beginning of our word, the word. Jesus and his disciples were gathered in the other upper room celebrating the Passover Seder dinner where you eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And if you're unfamiliar of what the Passover means, let me explain it to you because this also is important. Like I'm not Jewish, but you need to know because it's the tree we're grafted into. 
And you eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread and light candles, and you have a wine and a cup for Elijah, and you remember the Passover. What's the Passover? The Passover is when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, and there were plagues, right? You may have grown up reading about this. And the tenth plague, the last plague, was the death of all firstborn sons and even of animals. All going to die. But those who believed in the Lord could sacrifice a lamb and cover the doorposts with its blood, signifying that they were covered and identified as set apart from the wrath that was coming. That the angel of the Lord would pass over their house and they would be saved. The blood of the lamb covering the wrath. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This ain't Old Testament, y'all. This is New Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We're meant to understand that without blood sacrifice, there can be no forgiveness. Now keep that thought in your mind as we think of Jesus and rewind back to Nehemiah. High priest built the sheep gate, right? Okay, we got that. Okay, built sheep gate, consecrated it. And it was the only gate to be consecrated or made holy because it was used specifically now for bringing sacrifices to the temple, specifically sheep, specifically lambs sold for sacrifice. That's what the sheep gate was. That's why the, whole, that's the, the high priests consecrated it to make it holy because that's where the sacrifices came into the temple. That's why it's called the sheep gate. And here, if you know Old Testament, only a spotless lamb was allowed to be sacrificed for the Passover. No lips, no busted ear, no bad eyeball, no weird hair pattern, no weird growth. No, it's got to be a good Lamb, a perfect, a spotless lamb that's sold for sacrifice. And then, why it's called the sheep gate, they would be washed at the pool that was outside the city of this sheep gate. And this is the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus healed a man in John 5, if you want to read more homework later. And this is also the same gate where later Stephen was stoned in Acts as Saul looked on. And so in this situation with the sheep gate that the high priests and under Nehemiah's leadership built, this sheep gate, a perfect lamb would be washed and then sacrificed, taken through the sheep gate because it was consecrated and made holy by the high priests. Now today, Jerusalem is a sprawling city built over many of the landmarks where these things happened. Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified was outside the city walls. And Jesus' view as he hung suffocating and beaten and bleeding on a cross would have been of the walls that, that Nehemiah built. Think about that. That's his view of these walls where 500 years earlier Nehemiah had led this city to be rebuilt. And he would have looked in the sheep gate the high priests consecrated. And guess what? If you go even to this day, to the city of Jerusalem, the way is marked out where Jesus would have walked out of the city of Jerusalem to be killed and crucified at Calvary. And this Via Dolorosa still stands. And do you know what gate Jesus went through to be crucified? 
the sheep gate, a spotless, sinless sacrifice, Jesus. And when Jesus was washed, baptized, hear this, John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb. Not his name, his identity. This is the Lamb of God, spotless, sinless sacrifice that will go wash and through the sheep gate to be the propitiation for all of mankind's sins for all eternity. Here he comes. Not just Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's a weird intro. Right? If I went up to you, hey, cat of Melbourne kangaroo of Rockledge. No, that's like, that's a weird intro for them. Who would say, here comes the Lamb of God? Well, John the Baptist, because he's in on it. It's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, prophesied about. He knows it when he sees it, because he's walking with God. Here comes the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the whole world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. He's greater in every possible way because he was before me. I myself, I didn't know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing, washing with water like we've done this morning that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. John says in the Revelation, this, this vision that he had, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, the temple torn, access to everyone. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. New covenant. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And if you don't know Jesus, friend, that's your story. Change it. You have access to it. You don't need to live that way anymore. There is a better way. Jesus came so that you could have it and have it to the fullest. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, 
and its lamp is the Lamb. Here it is again, the lamp, the Lamb. By by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates, its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. We've got to be washed with the Lamb, paid for by the blood of the Lamb on the cross for us. Hang it on your doorpost. Put a sign above your life as you hang in your sin that says, I, I'm bad, but he is good. And I am paid for and bought and redeemed. Nothing unclean will ever enter this holy place dwelled by the Lamb or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a joy we have in Jesus the sinless lamb, the sacrifice, the king of peace, the high priest, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the holy one, the way, the truth, the life, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, this is Easter. This is Easter. This is the good news. This is what it's all about. From Genesis to Revelation and everything between paints us a picture of the Almighty God and what He came to do. My heart can't help but be moved by this magnificent display of God's glory. And my heart aches for all those who are far from God to fall on their knees and repent from their sin and surrender to and worship relentlessly this great King of kings and Lord of lords who didn't look at us and say, you're good by yourself, you are worthy, but redeemed us so that our worth could be found in Him. Not on our own, but in Christ alone. How can one not stand in just absolute awe and wonder at the majesty and the mystery of the author and the finisher of our faith? How can the slightest concept of the splendor of this glory not bring us to our knees in in praise and humility and amazement and say like Isaiah did in chapter 6 of the book that bears his name after seeing a vision of the Lord being worshipped by angels, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm sinful, I'm unclean, I'm unworthy, and I live in a sinful and unclean and unworthy world, and I've just seen a glimpse, just a taste of God's glory. And it's on display still today for all of us. How can our hearts not be moved to repentance by the redemptive heart of God? Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice even in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For the enemies of which we were to Him on the wrong side of God. And He died for us still. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, you and me, still sinful people before Christ, he died for you. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, the blood of the Lamb, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, this is Easter. This is what we celebrate. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Can we praise him this morning? This is Easter. This is what we're here for. And look, if you got Easter lunch plans, I don't care. If you got to go, you got to go. But as for me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. And we're going to sing, and we're going to celebrate, and we are going to praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the propitiation for our sins. We're going to celebrate. We're going to bring the kids in. They're going to celebrate with us all. We're going to make this house loud to give God glory this morning.